Hello, I'm Caleb Barkman, and I was asked to um, fill the pulpit for Zach. And I know most of you are probably looking and like, oh man, why is Zach not here? We all love Zach. And as disappointing as that may be, I'm very thankful um, for you to have me. And although the speaker today, me, has changed, the Word of God has not changed. So if I accurately represent that, I pray that that would um, fill your hearts and cause you to love God more and love other people more, because that is the um, aim of the Bible. Jesus says, the whole law and the prophets hang on these two commands, to love God and love other people. So if you don't come away from the Bible loving God more, and learning how to love one another more, and you're not doing it right. So um, I pray that that would be the result today, and I thank you guys for having me. So when I was five years old, my parents took a big step of faith, or they, took a, they began a walk of faith, a journey of faith, the mission aviation organization that they worked for um, asked them to move at the time we were living in Arizona, and they asked them to move to the Philippines to take over the flight program there. The flight program provided um, the missionaries there transportation to and from tribes so that those missionaries could share the gospel. Those missionaries not having a flight program, a lot of their time was taken away from being able to share the gospel, just trying to figure out how to get food and medical supplies and everything into the tribe. So their missionary pilot there, Martin Burnham, you may have heard that name, was killed by guerrillas there or a rogue um, group of men. So... They were killed, and my parents were asked to move to the Philippines. My parents initially said, no, uh, we don't want to uproot our family and move all the way over there. But the mission organization kept on asking. And after reading the story of George Mueller, if you don't know who George Mueller is, he, was a, he had an orphanage, and he ran that orphanage by faith. He would pray that God would provide what was needed for the orphanage, and God provided in crazy ways. So my parents read about George Mueller, and they were kind of convicted and said, you know what? God does want us to move across the world. It's a big step of faith, but we're going to do it. So they took me and my brother, and we moved, changed continents. Everything changed for me. That had a major impact on my life. And my parents later on, they asked me, Caleb, how did this affect you? What were the, was it good? Was it bad? Um, how did it affect your belief in God? And I'm not going to answer that now. I'm going to answer that at the end of the, end of the sermon. So I hope by the time we get there, you um, can guess my my reply to that answer. 
But we're going to transition, and today we're in Matthew 15, as was read beautifully. And Matthew is a gospel, and a gospel is an autobiography. So as you come to an autobiography in 21st century Western thought, you have certain expectations of what, how it's going to be written. And some of these are good, and some can lead you astray. So we think of a biography as the story of a person's life told in chronological order um, to reveal more about them. Part of that is true about the Gospels. They are a telling of Jesus' life, and they do teach us more about who he is. But part of that is not um, helpful when we come to the Gospels. The Gospels are not necessarily chronological. So when we're reading a gospel, we need to be a very important attention to the ordering of the stories. If you doubt that the gospels aren't chronological or um, think, no, no, they're chronological, just try to map Jesus' movements through each one of the gospels. And what you'll see is that he goes wildly different places in each gospel. And at first, we might be kind of offended and think, whoa, this is the inspired word of God. Why is it not in chronological order? Why did the gospel writers mix things up? And although that may be a um, reaction we have, that is not correct. The gospels are Um, God's word, and they are inspired by God, and they are accurate. They are good biographies. But the reasoning that they're not necessarily ordered in a sequential chronological order is because um, each gospel writer had a different point that they were trying to get across to their audience. And by grouping stories together in a certain way, they could kind of bring out those, those themes those ideas. So um, Matthew's big focus is Jesus as king. So there's a lot of, of talk of Jesus as king, and there's a lot of focus on that. But the important thing is, as we come to the gospel that we, and try to interpret it, because we want to know what God is trying to tell us through his word, that we pay careful attention to context and how the stories are ordered because that's going to give us huge clues as to what the author was trying to communicate. So we're in chapter 15. In chapter 14, we have two accounts um, that take place at the end of chapter 14. We have this account of Jesus walking on water, and then we have this story of him healing and all who reach out um, to touch his garment are healed. And what these two, the link that kind of connects these two stories is this theme of faith. In this story where um, Jesus walks on water, Peter sees him and he's like, whoa, let's go. I'm going to walk on water too with you, Jesus. And he's really excited. So he gets out of the boat and then he doubts and he sinks. And Jesus says, you have little faith. And then In the following story, we have another picture of faith where those who um, 
reach out and touch Jesus' garment are healed. All they needed to do was, was reach out and touch that garment, and they're healed. So we have these two stories that are linked by this theme of faith. That transitions directly into our passage today. And I want you to keep that at the back of your mind as we um, go through chapter 15, 1 through 28, is this theme of faith and, and what Matthew is doing with that. So if you open your Bibles to Matthew 15, chapter 1, or chapter 15, verse 1, um, read. Um, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So Matthew says, verse 1, he says, These scribes and Pharisees come from Jerusalem to Jesus. Now, it's a little bit unclear where Jesus is. In the previous um, account, Jesus was by the Sea of Galilee, but the wording here makes it a little bit unclear if he's still there or if he's changed locations. But the important part is that we notice the scribes and Pharisees go out of their way to come and question Jesus. They're they're very adamant about trying to find some sort of fault with this man um, who is um, teaching about God. So they come to Jesus and they question him. They say, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? Because the tradition of our elder says, don't eat with unwashed hands. This is important that we notice this. They're not saying the law says that we need to eat with washed hands and your disciples are not eating with washed hands. No, they say our tradition says that you should eat with washed hands and your disciples are not eating with washed hands. What's up? So they're not questioning Jesus about the law. They're questioning Jesus about their own man-made rules and interpretation of the cleanliness laws. So the natural question arises, well, what, what is this whole deal with cleanliness and cleanliness laws? That probably doesn't uh, resonate with us very well. We say, well, it's gross to not eat with washed hands. Uh, so that's why you wash your hands. We don't think of spiritual implications or anything like that. So, what is ritual impurity and what is its importance to the Pharisees? So, there are going to be three things to note about ritual purity. First, ritual purity was a way of being set apart um, or holy. Holy just means being set apart um, as for God, for special use and kind of escaping the impurities of the sin that comes in this world. Um, So it's a way of being set apart or holy before God in a world filled with the impurity of sin. So that's the first point about ritual um, purity. Following cleanliness laws about bodily discharges, Leviticus 15.31 says, 
Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanliness, lest they die in their uncleanliness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So in this passage, an important thing to notice is God doesn't say, well, be cleanly so that, or separate yourself from your uncleanliness so that you are clean all the time. It says, so that you don't defile um, my tabernacle that is in your midst. So the importance of cleanliness laws is that when people are going into holy places, they don't defile those places. They um, do the, the proper washings and such so that they are clean when they go into these spaces that are set apart for the worship of God. It's debatable whether there was really any importance to um, cleanliness laws if you weren't going to go um, be part of a sacrifice or go into a holy place. So that's important. Um, Two, impurity came in various degrees. And then three, each type of uncleanliness was given provision to cleanse it. This meant that if a person was unclean, they could do something to become clean again. So there are various degrees. You could be like super unclean or just a little bit unclean. And then depending on where you were on that cleanliness chart, so to speak, um, you, there were different provisions for what you could do to become holy so that you could worship God in these spaces. In the law if we go back to the Old Testament and look through the law, cleansing from impurity generally came through bathing the whole body, not just hand-washing. It, it came through bathing. For the non-priests, the only time hand-washing was called for was in the case of a discharge, probably of uh, a sexual nature. Um, hand-washing was not something in the law that was required for the normal Jewish person. So this was not something in the law that was like, okay, wash your hands all the time um, to stay clean. That was not, not a part of the law. Further, there's no scriptural reason that eating with unwashed hands would make a person's food unclean, let alone make them unclean. So um, if cleansing from impurity came from bathing and one's food did not become unclean through unwashed hands, why was it a problem for the Pharisees and scribes that Jesus' disciples were eating with unwashed hands. The disciples, um, from reading through the law, were not breaking the law. They weren't necessarily doing anything um, inherently wrong. So why is this important to the Pharisees? Why do they feel like this is a point they can attack Jesus on? Well, um, scribes and Pharisees, we could um, designate almost like uh, modern theologians. They... They wrote and taught on the Bible, interpreted the Bible, and, and gave that to the people. And so they, they, over time, they made a number of assumptions. Um, the first assumption is that hands, um, and they made these assumptions with little biblical support, but probably with a heart to want to be clean, to want to be holy before God. Um, so they assume that hands could be defiled apart from the body. Um, so like just your hands could be defiled. The law didn't say that, but they, 
came up with that, that the hands could be defiled apart from the body. This defilement could be passed to the food they were eating, and the defiled food would in turn defile the person eating it. So they make all these assumptions. Um, they probably just wanted to make sure they were as clean as possible because they thought that that would give them more points with God. So they're kind of like, if we go kind of above and beyond the law here, if we make sure that we're not unclean at all, maybe God will look more favorably upon us or we can kind of um, look better in front of our friends. Um, So... The point here, though, is that the accusation given by the scribes and Pharisees is not an accusation of you're not following the law. They're accusing Jesus, why do your disciples not follow our man-made rules? Why, Jesus? So Jesus, at the beginning of this reply, the way that Matthew records it, he doesn't even start by answering them or defending himself. Jesus is God. He he doesn't need to defend himself. Instead, he questions them. He replies, and why, and I'm reading in the ESV, so if it's a little bit different than what you're reading, that's why. And so, um, verse... And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Jesus just goes right on to the offensive. He says, okay, you're questioning me about your traditions, but your traditions, you actually have traditions that go contrary to the law. I'm God. I know the law back, back to front. He says, you, don't, you're, you have all these traditions, and some of your traditions actually break the law. You figured out a way to allow people to not honor their father and their mother, Um, by making a vow to God or by saying, this is given to God. So you've actually um, kind of found a loophole or something like that in the law that you can can work your way through. And you're not, your traditions actually go against my law, against the good that I have, the good law that, that has been given to you. And then he goes on in verse 6. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments men. So... Jesus rhetorically kind of just slugs the Pharisees and scribes in the face. And he compares them to their stubborn forefathers. He compares them to the people that um, 
caused Israel to be uprooted from the land that God has given them. And he says, you are just like your forefathers. You honor me with your lips. You say good stuff. You, and then you teach as my commandments. God says, you teach as what I have. You say, this is what I have said, but it's not what I've said. It's your own things that you're making up. Um, they confess love for God, but they're far away from him. The text then transitions from the Pharisees to the people. So it's kind of like the camera pans over, and then Jesus is, is talking to the people. Verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. So, Jesus kind of goes back and answers the question the Pharisees has had to the people. Why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? And he says, because it's not what goes into you that defiles you. Your hands being unclean, somehow making the food that you're eating unclean, making you unclean, that's not the way it works. That doesn't make you unclean. What makes you unclean is what comes out of you. And this is almost... uh, a uh, humorous pun, because in the law, what came out of a person was part of what made them unclean. There's all these laws about bodily discharges and that sort of thing, and those things made you unclean. But Jesus is using this metaphor of what comes out of you makes you unclean, and we see later on that what he's talking about is what comes out of our hearts or the core of who we are is what makes us unclean. So the disciples come to him, and they say, hey, when you said this stuff, the scribes or the Pharisees were offended. They were mad. Uh, They didn't like what you had to say. And Jesus says, kind of implies, it doesn't matter what what the Pharisees think about my teaching, because they're not of God. They're not from God. And we've got all these man-made traditions. They're not actually mine. They're a plant. They're like a plant that my father hasn't planted. They're just going to be rooted up. And then he compares him to a blind guide. Imagine um, you're in a really hard to navigate space and you see someone and you're like, oh, they can help me help lead me where to go. And they end up being blind and they don't, um, they're not able to lead you well. And then you both end up falling into a sewer drain or whatever, you know? So he says, they don't know where they're going. They don't know God. So don't follow them. Just ignore them. doesn't matter what they say. The text kind of weaves back um, to the topic of um, what defiles a person. So verse 15, 
But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So Peter, maybe a little confused to imagine Peter is always kind of like, what's going on here? Let's ask some questions. Thankfully, he does, because then we get these really beautiful answers. So Peter says, what do you mean by this? What comes out of a person defiles them? He says, well, what goes into you, it just comes right back out. But um, what comes out of you affects who or reflects who you are. So out of a person come all these evil things. And why do they come out of a person? Because at the core of that person, in their heart, they are evil. They're, They're not good people at their heart. So what flows out of them is sin. It's all these bad things that defile them. It's kind of like um, when you plant something, you plant an apple tree, you get an apple tree. You know, you don't get something different than what you plant. Well, people don't produce something different than who they are on the inside. And if they're dirty on the inside, they're going to be dirty on the outside. No amount of polish, no amount of wax can um, make them clean if, if at the root of who they are, there is, a, there is a sin problem. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we see this problem in Israel where there's prophecies and stuff saying, right now you have this heart of stone, but later on you're going to be given a heart of flesh that allows you to worship me, that allows you to be the people that I've called you to be, that allows you to actually follow the, um, the purpose of the law, which is to love God and love other people. Sorry, got a lot of notes here. Get a little mixed up. So Matthew follows this account of in conflict of the Pharisees about what defile a person with a very peculiar story about a Canaanite woman. So if you turn to verse 21, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus withdraws to, the, um, to Tyre and Sidon. 
And it kind of, the wording kind of makes us think that maybe Jesus is um, stepping away because the Pharisees are, are, um, their, their plan to kill him is kind of coming up. But either way, he, he draws away, doesn't give us a super clear answer to why, but he goes to these Gentile, this Gentile place. Um, these Tyre and Sidon were Gentile towns in Phoenicia. Phoenicia, if you don't know this, is where Jezebel was from. And if when I say the word Jezebel, your heart doesn't kind of go <laughs> inside your chest. Um, she was one of the most evil queens in Israel. And you can read about her in First Kings. But the point here is that this um, place is not really where a Jew would like to find themselves. This is um, maybe if you think about ending up in kind of the um, worst part of town where a lot of bad stuff is going on that you don't really want to be a part of. That's kind of, kind of the feeling that most people would have gotten. Like, why did you go off to this evil place? Why do you go out hang out with Gentiles? What's going on here, Jesus? And it's amusing because it just follows this story about cleanliness and being clean and set apart. And then Jesus is over here in these <laughs> Gentile places. Um, and while Jesus is here, this Canaanite woman calls out to him. And we should note that Canaanite is um, synonymous with Phoenician. So um, this woman is from the same place that Jezebel was from. She's not, not the kind of person a, a Jew would probably want to hang out with, I'm guessing. So the woman calls out to Jesus to have mercy on her and heal her demon-possessed son. So immediately we should notice how this woman's posture, this Gentile woman's posture, contrasts the Pharisees and scribes. When the Pharisees and scribes are questioning Jesus about cleanliness, they're, they're kind of attacking. They go in to um, be with Jesus and are like, okay, why, 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 why? Um, they're like the child that is like, comes up to their parent and they're like, why did you take my toy away from me? I was playing with that. You know, they're upset with Jesus. They come in, um, they come in kind of ready to fight. They come in thinking, we're better. Uh, we're better than you. We're going to find some sort of fault with you. This Canaanite woman comes crying out, have mercy on me. Heal my demon-possessed son. She knows she's not worthy. She knows that um, she is not a good person. But she also knows that Jesus um, is good. And he is um, the one who can heal her son. So she does this for a while. His disciples are like, tell her to leave. She's this Canaanite woman following us. Tell her to leave. And um, he doesn't reply to her, and he tells his um, 
disciples that he's only sent to the lost people of Israel. So that's, not, that's why he's not replying to her. He says, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. This is not one of the lost sheep of Israel. So that's why I'm, I'm not engaging here. And this may seem odd to us. Um, there's a lot we could get into about how um, this worked and um, how this was a, a right thing to happen and how Jesus wasn't being um, mean or, or contrary to his nature of love. We could dig into that, but that would probably cause us to miss the point that Matthew is making. This story wasn't given to us to be a, a woke talking point in 21st century Western America. It was given to us to communicate a message about faith. So we could go down those rabbit trails, but sometimes that can distract from what the text is trying to communicate. So we want to ask, what is the text trying to say? Not what are all the things that I have a problem with Because when we do that, when we start questioning Jesus in those ways, we're just like the Pharisees. We're just like the Pharisees and saying, hey, you um, are not following our idea of what love is. We don't want to do that. We want to say, what is Jesus doing here? Um, and then have that cause us to worship him. So verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So the woman comes to Jesus and takes this posture of humility. She asks again, Lord, help me. Kneeling down, he says, um, should, the, should the dogs get the crumbs that were um, meant for the, or should the children's bread be given to the dogs? And she says, no, but even the dogs get the crumbs from their master's table. Again, um, our hearts may start pumping uh, fast enough to supply a town of vampires. You know, we're, we get so worked up about, did Jesus just call Gentiles dogs? Well, I'm a Gentile. I don't want to be called a dog. You know, we can get into um, this way of thinking. But this is actually the, what this woman communicates is what, is kind of showing throughout the whole Old Testament, which is God sets apart um, Israel to be his people. And then he says, when you're my people through you, the whole world will be blessed. So as a result of you, the world is going to be blessed. And so she says, yes, you came to give bread to um, the children. But the, chill, the dogs get to eat the bread 
the crumbs that fall from their masters. She's like, I should get the overflow blessing of what is meant for Israel. You came to Israel? Well, I'm a Gentile. I should get the overflow blessing. I should receive that overflow blessing. And I think that's beautiful. She um, communicates this in such faith. And Jesus says, great is your faith. And immediately he heals her son. He says, yes. Yes, you do get the overflow blessing. Now, I think we should reflect on this a little bit because we're Gentiles. We weren't originally God's chosen people. But through what Christ has done, we've been grafted in and we can enjoy fellowship with God. We can enjoy these blessings of being God's people, even though originally we weren't God's people. We were far off. We can enjoy that. So these passages, as with all of Scripture, get me so excited. They're pure literary genius. I don't know if you guys like to read novels and stuff, poetry, that sort of thing, but it can be really exciting seeing how the author weaves everything together and um, plays with words and communicates this stuff. The way that Matthew kind of writes this and gives us all this truth in these 28 verses is incredible. Through these stories, we can see that trying to become clean on the outside without a heart change is useless. We can try to do all these good things to to make ourselves clean, follow all these traditions. But when we do that, we're like pigs who cover themselves in makeup to go to a fashion show. You know, if you can imagine a pig with makeup, it's probably not that pretty. We're like that. When we try to um, become clean through following these ideas that we have of what a good person does, we're, we're just like the Pharisees. Our good efforts cannot make us clean if our hearts have not been reborn by grace through faith. The, the story of the Canaanite woman shows that God cares for us as Gentiles. To have faith is far more important than to have tradition. If we depend on our tradition, we will be rooted up like the blind Pharisees. So what comes out of us? Jesus says, it's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. What comes out of us? What came out of the Pharisees was unbelief, was blind tradition, blind religion that didn't have any care for God, didn't have love for God. When God came to earth, Um, what came out of them was not love for him. What came out of this Gentile Canaanite woman is faith. So what comes out of us? Does faith come out of us? Do we question Jesus? Do we ask him, why did you do this in in an accusatory way? Or do we seek to learn from him? Do we seek to know him? He is a good king. He he heals our broken hearts, just like he healed the Canaanites' um, son. 
this passage also reminds us that we can love others through teaching faith rather than tradition. People don't need more man-made laws. They need faith. I once heard a strong Christian woman, very nice Christian woman, um, who was very upset by the fact that today's generation, guys don't open the doors for girls. She kind of went on about how one of her big desires was to teach the next generation um, that men open up doors for girls. And as I heard her talk, I think she, she wanted to, she desired to help the next generation follow God, but her focus was off. That people were opening, men were opening doors for women for generations, but then abusing those same women. All these traditions that we have um, don't save us. They're not the important thing. They're not the thing that we want to spend all our time focused on. Um, it's so easy to kind of get into that, that way of thinking that we pass on all these ideas of, of what it means to follow God without having actual scripture that we're, that we're teaching the next generation, that we're teaching each other, that we're helping each other to strive for. I think this point is especially pertinent to parents. I saw a lot of um, really great children running around earlier. And I'm not a parent. I'm excited to hopefully be a parent one day. I'm not yet. But I think parents have this incredible gift from God where they are raising their children to um, be like them. You know, a lot of times I'll say something and I hear my father. Um, I'll do something and I'll be like, my dad would have done that. And it's because I've spent so much time with my dad. Even things that I maybe don't like about my dad, I just end up emulating. Because that's the family I grew up in. That's where I um, was born and raised. So when you think about raising your kids, don't think about all these um, traditions and ideas that you can pass on to your kids, all these like American dream and, and those sort of things. Think about how can I pass faith on to my kids? How can I teach my kids that the most important thing is not all these man-made laws? It's not what my grandpa did. It's not how my mom cooked the dinner or whatever. It's faith. Faith is the important thing. It's love for Jesus, love for God. So I started with that story of my parents leaving everything to follow God in faith. That ended up being a long journey. They're still on it. Now they live in Spokane. I actually rent a room from them. But what did I learn through my parents making that step of faith? Well, I actually attribute my own faith to watching them, to being on that journey with them. A lot of parents through the years that I've heard have said, well, we don't want to be missionaries. We don't want to make this um, step of faith because we're afraid our 
our kids will lose these different things. And I think, no. Follow God. What God has called you to, um, whether that be volunteering with your kids somewhere or going to the mission field or just teaching your kids the ways of God, do that. Because when my parents made that step of faith, no, they weren't perfect. They made a lot of mistakes. Their theology was off um, in different places. And they learned a lot. They're, they're still growing. But when I watched them make that step of faith, it told me as a five-year-old kid, God is worth everything. Um, if my parents are willing to move across the world because they think that's what God wants them to do, God must be worth a lot. So is that what we're communicating to each other? Are we communicating God is worth a lot? Are we communicating faith? Or are we stuck up on, on traditions and trying to be clean by doing all the, all the little things? Look at the big picture and say, the big picture is that we love Jesus. And then the scripture, all the little things in scripture just teach us how to love God more and how to love each other more. I want to close this message by reminding us that we are clean because Jesus has made us clean. We love God and others. These good works flow out of us because we've been given a new heart. We don't sin as much as we used to because we are new people. And if you turn to 1 Peter um, 1 through 5, it's not on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you can turn there. 1 Peter 1, um, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." We're clean because if we believe in Jesus, God has made our hearts clean. So let's let faith, let's let love for Jesus, love for God the Father, love for the Spirit, let's let that pour out of us because that's what God desires. He desires faith.